Welcome back to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to our iTunes and look up under Not the Public Podcast and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. One of our most popular episodes on The Full Cat was our discussion with American educator, activist, and author Warren Farrell. His latest book, The Boy Crisis, co-written with John Gray, is an eye-opening examination of what's happened to males in an era of ascendant feminism. As Warren has observed, whenever only one sex wins, both sexes lose. In our earlier chat, Warren pointed out that so many of the troubled young men committing crimes or joining ISIS are products of homes where fathers are missing. Since that broadcast, we've had examples of troubled young men murdering schoolmates in high schools. What is going on here? Warren Farrell is a compelling advocate for men and boys. He joins us on this episode of The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan from Mill Valley, California. Welcome back, Warren. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Now, you've written about the propensity for school shootings that we've seen since Sandy Hook, and yet it's only boys doing this. Why do you think this is happening? Well, I, uh, the most uh, the uh, the major school shootings, uh, the ones that had or, or mass shootings actually, which include more than schools, um, the ones by major, I mean, uh, where eight or more people were killed since 1948. 26 out of 28 of them uh, had in common, and this is, does not include the Santa Fe shooting, the Santa Fe shooting was, was not in this category, but 26 out of 28 of them um, had uh, boy were boys who um, did not have either any or at all significant amount of father involvement. Uh, when a boy doesn't have a significant amount of father involvement, he usually ends up feeling abandoned by who he is aspiring to be. Um, he doesn't, and he becomes rudderless. In the old days, that was really uh, bad. But usually, when a boy didn't have a father in the old days, he had at least his father was a warrior who was killed in war, and his father, his mother spoke of him as a hero. And the the culture was filled with a very clear mandate as to what a boy needed to be. He needed to be either disposable as a warrior or disposable in work. And then, if he was able to be willing to uh, be be one of those things, he was. Uh, um, called a hero and he was called successful. And so even if he didn't have a father, if he had a father who died as a warrior, that at least was a role model as to what he could be. Mm. Uh, today, um, there is not as much need for boys to die in war, fortunately, and there's not as, and, and women are sharing more of the breadwinner role, fortunately. Mm. Um, but at the same time, that's let, left a purpose void. So you have two things happening here. You have this purpose void among boys combined with a very high percentage of boys who do not have father involvement. That is about one third of boys at any given point in time uh, growing up do not have father involvement of any significance. They may see them every other weekend or something like that, but that's not a, a significant amount of father involvement. And it's those boys where the boy crisis exists. Mm. Um, um, and another group of boys, the good news is, Fathers are more involved than your father and my father, or at least my father um, ever was. And I can't speak for your father. My dad, too, was involved with me. That's okay. You, you, oh, you're very fortunate. I That's was probably, lucky. Yes, you were very fortunate. And so the boys that have a lot of father involvement, in addition to mother involvement, those are boys who do extremely well. And they're almost the opposite of boy crisis boys. They're like, you know, when I see those boys in, in some of the think tanks that I belong to, it's like, 
I, I can imagine being as mature as they are at those at, at, at that age. And so, um, but the, the boy crisis itself happens from a lack of father involvement. And the single biggest thing that's missing when dad is missing is boundary enforcement. Um, and when dads tend to say very clearly, well, first of all, dads create bonds. They do things like roughhousing. Roughhousing teaches boys how to distinguish between when to be assertive and when to be aggressive and when is when's too much. And, you know, even in excitement, how do you um, maintain um, good boundaries? Um, but then but boundary enforce, uh, but roughhousing rather creates a bond between the father and the children. And so the fathers can say, OK, enough roughhousing. It's um, <laughs> nine, nine o'clock. It's bedtime. Uh, whatever you whenever you get all your chores done, your homework done, um, you know, stuff cleaned up, et cetera. Um, then then the time between when you finish that and uh, nine o'clock, uh, we'll do whatever you want to do. And so the kids start focusing. They focus on doing what they need to do um, to get done, to get what they want to have, the roughhousing, more, fu more fun with dad. Yeah. Um, and and the, the dad setting those boundaries does not create resentment because of the bond that the fathers have built. And once the kids know how to do boundary enforcement, they have the key to success. The single most important key to success is the ability to have postponed gratification plus a secure home environment. When you have those two things together, uh, that's when the boys can go in and the girls too can go in and get their homework done as opposed to getting distracted by uh, texts or video game, um, the newest video game, et cetera. And so then the boys begin to feel good about themselves as compared to other boys. They're really doing well in school. Um, the teachers are admiring them and respecting them and giving them good grades. Other, other guys are respecting them. Their parents are proud of them. They don't feel any shame. Uh, boys that don't have the ability to have that enforced um, boundaries that lead to a lack of postponed gratification start feeling down on themselves and they begin to withdraw into video games and a little bit later into porn. That's where the dangers begin to unfold into depression, sometimes suicide, and in the worst case scenarios, the school shootings. Uh, because you mentioned it when you were talking about Sandy Hook, that it seems like that was in some ways was, or, or maybe Columbine was kind of a, a, a linchpin moment that, that, you know, that we seem, things seem to have accelerated since that point. And there's almost as if these young boys, these, these lost boys are looking for a role and these particular young men who've done their crimes are, are all of a sudden a role model for them. And, and it seems to be accelerating. Yes. It's especially a role model in the sense of, um, you know, these if you feel you're at school and no one is paying attention to you, no one's respecting you, no one is appreciating the sensitive soul that you are and some some of your finer characteristics, and um, and you feel this about your teachers and fellow students, and if you begin to be in boy-girl time mode and you see the girls rejecting you and accepting other boys, then the painfulness of that rejection when you're attracted to a young woman like it happened in Santa Fe, uh, Texas, um, and, and you're rejected. The, the pain is enormous. Only if, you, if you're a guy, you understand, uh, you know, what it is to reach out to a girl that that's, you're interested in and she sort of, you know, shuts doesn't have an interest down. in you, shuts you down. And if that happens again and again and again for a boy, uh, because he isn't, you know, he is from the girl's perspective sort of a loser and she doesn't even want to, even if she likes him, she doesn't want to be associated with a loser. You can get, build up such anger toward your teachers, to your school, um, and them not paying attention to you and not having 
having any type of visibility that you know that the shooting is going to create visibility for you. Mm -hmm. And when you have that uh, potential and you also have you know, access to an AR-15 or other guns and you know you can you can make a real impact if, you know, it's, it's called school shootings for a reason. Um, you know, it's not school stabbings and the, the shootings, the availability of guns allows us to make a, to magnify the impact we have of being certain that we will get attention. And particularly if we plan it well and carefully, as you know, almost all the, the major school shooters, the ones that really make the super headlines, they're ones that don't just go in and shoot. They're ones that have, have planned, uh, they've orchestrated um, a, a, a plan to make sure that many people got killed in the process. Mm. There, as you point out, there's so much evidence of this crisis in our society, and yet the cultural and media forces don't seem to notice or to speak about it. Help us here a little bit. What are some of the signs of this crisis that you talk about in your book? It is um, boys being withdrawn. You know, first, it's the single biggest sign. If you if you're if you're a teacher or a guidance counselor, or a parent uh, watching this, if your son isn't doing well in school, in either academics or in sports, and he and he's begun to withdraw into video games. Um, or he's a little bit older and he disappears for a time and you have a sense and you check on his computer and you see there's a lot of porn coming up. Those are often signs of depression uh, where the boy doesn't feel that he can easily make real social contact with people at school, but he has to sort of withdraw into a virtual world. Now, we all know that a certain amount of video game playing is no problem and actually can increase increase um, many competencies among boys. So I'm not talking about five hours a week or so, um, but the average boy does 13 hours a week and where it begins to get dangerous is around 17, 18, 19, 20 or more hours per week. <clears throat> and when you can't, and if you're the type of parent who says to, to would say to me, you know, uh, Warren Farrell or Dr. Farrell, you know, I can't um, get my son to give up um, um, uh, electronics at dinner time. Uh, so that we can have these dinner family dinner nights that you always talk about in your book. Um, and then I'm, the second I hear that is the second that I know that you don't have parents in that family. You have par the parents are the are the children who are telling you what they can and can't do. You have enormous leverage over your children of being able to say, um, no, there's no option to bring electronics to this table, particularly on a, on a night that we have set aside for family dinner night. Mm -hmm. And the child brings it the, 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 the electronics to the table anyway, and you take the, you know, the, the, the electronics away from the child. The child objects to that. You take the electronics away from the child for a longer period of time. You cut off the finances that finance the, um, the ability to have access to it. Uh, you, you know, there's many, many ways of of making sure uh, you, you, the the, you know, the taking of the child to the car somewhere, taking them to a game, doing things that are fun with them. Yeah. There's lots of things that parents have as leverage to make it clear uh, that they're in charge and that your duty is to be in charge. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode, our repeat guest, is American educator, activist, and author Warren Farrell. His latest book, The Boy Crisis, is co-written with John Gray. Give us a couple of other signs that we might look for in either our own family or maybe kids in the neighborhood. Yes, um, certainly the, the withdrawal, the, um, any, any, anything on Facebook or, um, you know, um, or any of the media where your son is uh, beginning to sort of talk about um, um, hate groups that he's aligning with or um, hating people, um, a, a lack of forgiving people easily, a lack of um, 
um, talk, talking very fluently on the phone to a friend, but being very cautious and circumspect and withdrawn with you um, means that you don't have that same, that your, your son or daughter is probably worried about always being judged. Um, but also I want to make it clear, if you're a mom listening to this, and you, you have no way, you know, first of all, if you're a mom listening to this and the, the biological data is not involved, truly focus on understanding the 10 different types of ways that men parent, that dads parent, that is different from the way moms parent. Um, it is not just a father, is not just a male figure. He brings a different type of consciousness to, to the fathering process. Um, he, he's much more likely to encourage, uh, be fine with having his son, for example, um, go to the, the playground and pick up a game um, without him being there watching him all the time. And inside the dad's mind, it is if, if, this, if his son gets into a fight with kids on the playground, um, he has a chance to talk with his son about what got you know what were the danger signs what were the red flags what got him into the fight and if your son gets a black eye that's a price that is not so bad to pay for learning all these things about how to differentiate between kids that are um, worth playing with with versus those are that aren't how to differentiate between a response from a bully type of kid that is that doesn't aggravate the belief to a response that is um, that is that is more that allows him to be in charge of the of the whole social interaction. Yeah. Um, you know, when you take a, a father is far more likely to take a child out camping and to to tease a child, and a mom is more likely to say, "Yeah, why are you teasing him? You're so insensitive. You're just like a kid." <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Oftentimes, oftentimes moms see father behavior as just one more kid to monitor, uh, but in <laughs> but in fact, it's uh, we are like kids with kids, which is why kids have such fun with us. But we are just like kids. Um, uh, we're like more like a roller coaster. I think is a good analogy. Where um, you know a roller coaster, it's a lot of fun, but you know that it's being put together safely. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel like it was so much fun. Yeah, and and, and I guess apropos of the the things you're speaking about, fathers and how how fathers interact differently. You also have talked about the importance in the school system of continuing to have male teachers as well. And that, that might be one of the, the issues that we also have is the, is the absence of male teachers in our schools now. That is a huge issue, the absence of male teachers. And this is something I'm going to be talking to a week after next to the Department of Education about is, is having a whole program to recruit males to make it a very honorable profession for males to young males to get into teaching. Um, boy, when, if a boy goes from an all-female home to an all-female school, is it any wonder why he would start being vulnerable to a gang leader's seduction that is, as a male role model? I mean, what a, what a setup. Um, and so uh, we, we need to make sure that um, boys have alternative role models. If you're a single mom and you say there's no way, shape, or form, I can even get the biological father involved. He's dead or he's in the hospital or he's in prison. Um, let me then make sure your son gets involved in Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts. Cub Scouts is a, and Boy Scouts are very good for character development. If you're at all faith-based in your orientation, find a faith-based community 
where there's a good minister, pastor, rabbi, um, who not only is a good role model, but also brings other boys together in groups where boys talk about what's hurting them and bothering them. A boy who does, who feels like there's seven or eight other boys his age that are going through the same things that he is going through, no longer feels so lonely, isolated, and feels like a loser. He realizes that every boy wears a mask, um, and that but every boy has a heart that is so deep um, and and sensitive beneath that mask uh, that when he realizes that he's not the only one with that vulnerability, um, he feels much more uh, empowered. You talk about the, the, that divorce is a key component of the boy crisis. I mentioned in the introduction, of course, some of the statistics uh, about uh, uh, boys coming from families with only one parent, how high they are, especially in minority communities, etc. But this is always a sticky uh, situation when we, we, we talk to society and say, yes, this is important. Society agrees on it. But how can we get families to stay together so that they can be there for the families when without seeming to have a kind of a society that dictates to people. Yes, the most important single thing I hope I say clearly in the boy crisis is that the process starts with communication. Um, divorces don't occur because of disagreements about sex or um, money or um, disagreements about um, um, schooling and things like that. They, they fall apart because of our disagree because of the way we communicate about our disagreements about money about sex about um, you know schools that the child should go to and things like that and so the very first thing that is that is important and the, the the Achilles heel in communication is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive mm -hmm. so the first job of every family is to make sure that you're that you get enough communication skill training to be able to handle your partner's concerns and criticism without getting into, uh, without becoming defensive, without escalating the tension so that you end up um, both walking on eggshells and not revealing to each other what you're really feeling because you don't want to escalate the tension. Um, or the dad just realizes that there's no way, shape, or form that he can be a really equal parent. So he just withdraws into earning money. And then that leaves the kids feeling abandoned, even as the mother feels like, good, I can be in charge now and don't have to argue with the father. The arguments that fathers and mothers have, they have to understand at a very deep level, those if if they if they know what the purpose of those arguments are, that is they are checks and balance what I call checks and balance parenting. It is important that the mother be the nurturer and a protector, or somebody be a nurturer and a protector. And it's very important that there be somebody that pushes the child to go into comfort zones that is not that are not easy. So if your son or daughter comes home from school and says, you know, I have a teacher that really hates me, Mrs. Myers really hates me, I want to be out of that classroom, uh, the mom's far more likely to go, sweetie, um, okay, there is, I'll make a, an appointment with the principal, and I know in, in addition to Mrs. Myers, says Mrs. Jones, we'll see if we can transfer you over to Mrs. Jones' class. Dad is far more likely to say, sweetie, in, in life, you know, sometimes you're going to have meet people that you don't get along with, yes. and it's important for you to know how to get along with them. Yes. So what? So what can you? If Mrs. Myers was talking, what would she say is the problem with you? 
and you know, the, your son will be well. Mrs. Myers would probably say I, he wouldn't want to answer the question, but when pushed to answer it, might say, "Well, Mrs. Myers feels that I passed too many notes, you know, during uh, during classroom." Um, and so instead of saying, "Well, I'll talk with Mrs. Myers about that," um, you say, "You know, uh, let's get Mrs. Myers and you together, and you two talk about it and see if you can work it out." And so, and when that type of connection and that type of connection, it has multiple levels of lack of comfort. Mm -hmm. That tends to be the role of dads to move a child out of comfort zone, to face what needs to be faced so that they learn how to de deal with getting along with people that are they don't naturally get along with. And those are the types of um, growth experiences that lead to fathers. When fathers are involved, children are likely to do better in more than 70 different areas. Um, including doing better in school in every single subject, um, having more friends at school, being much less likely to be depressed, having fewer days absent from school, uh, having fewer um, uh, times in emergency rooms, being less likely to be bullied, being less likely to be a bully, yeah. um, being uh, less likely to um, be involved with drugs, less likely to commit suicide. Um, so if you name a nightmare that you might have about your son or your daughter when you go to sleep at night, um, it is pretty much guaranteed that with more father involvement, that nightmare is likely is less likely to bear uh, fruit in reality. These things are so self-evident, and yet when they're brought into the societal discussion, they, re they hit a brick wall right away. Uh, are you suggesting that somehow we should make divorce more difficult? No, I'm, su I'm suggesting that, um, that, that the solution to divorce is not legislation, it's communication, And um, number one. Number two is a real understanding that divorce and, be, and having children without being married, these are not extensions of freedoms. We've, in the last, you know, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, so I was a huge supporter of female freedom. But I found that there were two major limitations of that. When a woman makes a free choice to have a child, at the moment she makes that free choice, she makes a free choice to have the child's life's experiences be as positive as possible. And we now know that the child having the best chance to have a good life um, comes when there's about an equal amount of involvement of father and mother. Mm -hmm. And that means, so then, then I was a little bit uncertain for a while about, well, Maybe that can happen when two people just live together as opposed to be married. But the data doesn't bear out what I was hoping for, which is that when, when, when in, in the United States today, among women under 30, this is an amazing statistic, among women under 30 who have children, 53% of them have children when they're not married. Now, even among the tight, most tightly knit of those women, that is the ones that have children while they have a, a man that they're living with but not married to, even among that subsection of that group, 40% um, of the fathers no longer see their children after the third year. Wow. Um, and so those, uh, so because living together is does not lead nearly to this as great a degree um, to a child having a father involvement over a long period of time. Mm. Additionally, the other, and that, that's where the boy crisis lies in two areas. In that area of boys and girls, but especially boys, 
born to mothers who don't have children, um, who don't, who aren't married when they have their for, uh, their children. And the second group is um, boys born to um, um, mothers and fathers who get divorced, especially at an early age, and when they are divorced, have a minimal amount of time with father and mother. Now, if you are divorced, there is a way. Uh, if, if you if you do what I call in the Boy Crisis book the four must dos, you can minimize the damage. Um, you, the four must dos is you must um, have an equal amount of um, time with father and mother um, with the, the children, both boy children and girl children. Number two, the children, the father and mother must live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other in order to um, the, have, have the children not experience that they're that in order to see the other parent, they have to miss activities and uh, um, that they're in and, and miss friends, uh, celebrations and birthday parties and things like that. Number three is there must be no bad mouthing that the child can detect from father to mother or mother to father. And number four, there must be consistent counseling, relationship counseling or couples communication counseling. Under the, If all four of those conditions are met, your child has a reasonable chance of doing not as well, but almost as well as she or he would do if the, if the marriage continued. Mm -hmm. Finally, I'd like you to tell tell end up with a story that you tell uh, that dates back to your days in the 70s when you were starting out in your career. And, and, and a man who came up to you by a man named John and talked to you a little bit about about dealing with his son and taking time for his son. If, if you could tell that story again. Yeah, um, I, I was always a little skeptical in the back of my mind about if there was a man, you know, who really had his act together in life, uh, would he be likely to take off, let's say, full time to be involved with the children um, while his, the wife maybe um, went out and worked full time? And um, I, so, and I, but I, and I used to join a lot of men's groups and I mean, I used to start a lot of men's groups. And so one of the men's groups I started, it was in many of the men's groups I started was in New York city. And one day about four or five years after I had started this men's group, a guy comes up to me at a, at a party and says, uh, you Warren Farrell? And I go, yes. And he says, um, you, I joined a men's group that you you started, but you had left the men's group already by the time I, I got involved. And I said, that was neat. And he said, I said, what happened in it? And he said, well, it was the most important um, event that ever happened in my life because I was um, deeply involved in um, my um, my business uh, when my first son was born. And I had this, uh, and I, and I paid almost no attention to my son. And the result of that was, to this day, I haven't paid attention to him. And um, and I, I got a divorce from from his mom. Um, and now um, I'm about, I'm I'm remarried, and I'm about ready to have another. Uh, or I, and when I joined this group, I was remarried, and I was about ready to have another son. Um, and so I was really worried that I did not repeat this pattern. And so I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, the group just put pressure on me to talk to my wife about whether or not I could take time off to be involved with um, uh, with my son. They said, you know, if this is what you want to do, John, go ahead and do it. And so um, I finally agreed to do that. 
And then I came back and said to the group, you know, well, my wife says that's okay if I want to do that. And um, and then he said, but I really can't because I have all these business ties uh, that I'm, I'm involved with. And the group said, so what you're saying, John, is what you own owns you, which doesn't make your the purpose of your business. If it's for you to live your own life and be free, you're not living up to the purpose of your business. And he said, well, I got to get I had to admit that was true. And they and they said, well, what would you do if you could do anything you want? And he said, well, this is a joke, but what I'd really love to do is to be fully involved with my son for five years, the first five years after he's born. And the group said, do it. And so I started laughing at them, but eventually, uh, step by step, I unwound this process of all the legal ties that I had. And I was, for the last couple of years, I've taken care of uh, my son full time. And I said, phenomenal, is that, or is that phenomenal? Was this a good decision or is it, was it a bad decision? Yeah. And he said, um, it, Warren, it was by far the best decision of my life. And I said, well, why? And he said, because, you know, I was talking and writing a lot about love before I had my son. Um, but since I've had my son, I have really learned what love is. Every day, almost every minute of my life, I'm thinking about his needs, not my needs. And it is so rewarding to give like that. Um, I wouldn't trade this for anything. And at this point in time, um, I had just come back from my first book tour. I didn't, I was focused on huge amounts of work that I was doing, didn't have a clue about what was on TV. Um, and so this guy comes up to me, and because I'd been on TV a lot, um, I uh, he said, can I have your autograph? And I reached up to get his piece of paper and pen, and he looked really tense and embarrassed. And I said, what's happening here? And he said, well, I, I yes, I'd like your autograph, but he had no idea who I was. And he said, <laughs> he said, but I have his autograph. And so John just quickly gave his autograph and passed it off because and because he gave it so quickly, I realized that he was very used to this. And um, and he uh, and so I said, well, well, who are you? I don't, I don't have a TV or anything, but you must be famous to be being approached like that. And he said, I'm John, just John. And he goes, no, no, John who? And he goes, John Lennon. And I and, and because, because I didn't have a TV, I, I went, John Lennon, I recognize that name. Are you, and I'm proud of myself now. I said, are you a member of a, of a singing group? And he, and he goes, yes. And I said, and I said, well, what's the group's name? And he goes, the Beatles. At which point, I just about die of embarrassment because this, <laughs> as ignorant as I was, I wasn't that ignorant. <laughs> so <laughs> it was um, quite an experience. But the, you know, the thing that I really got out of that experience, Bruce, was that that here is a man who is one of the most successful careers in in you know, recent human history, and um, and he said the best decision he ever made in his life was connecting to children. Mm -hmm. And in the last 20 years, as I've traveled around the, the country and Canada and helped children be involved with both parents after divorce, um, I, I have found that once a father gets involved with his child and, and sees the impact and the love uh, the, the the oxytocin in his in, in his brain just opens up. Um, we now know that neurons reconnect or connect in his brain that create a nest of neurons that are that are parallel to the female nest of neurons that we call the motherhood instinct. Mm -hmm. That father this does not happen to fathers that increase their focus on their work when their children are born, 
But fathers that focus on their children when their children are born have the parallel to a motherhood instinct. And so our brains adapt very quickly uh, when we are uh, deeply devoted to our children and we get an experience, you know, in this, in this century coming up, um, jobs and careers will change constantly. Um, but once we have children, that will be forever. It's a very famous story about John Lennon stepping away from his career that you that you discovered inadvertently, and uh, how he spent the time with his son Sean, and and how he also regained his muse and was able to write again, was able to freed up the blockage that he had in himself artistically. So it it was it was a benefit on all on all levels, and uh, we have you you to thank maybe for the final music that he wrote. Well, thank you, um, and many people say that accuse me of. Um, having him break up from the Beatles, but this was after he <laughs> broke up from the Beatles. Um, this was just his sole career break. Right? Well, we won't hold that, that at your door. And uh, thank you for telling us that story. And as always, thank you for taking the time to uh, explain a little bit about the boy crisis and, and what is clearly a, an issue that's the front of everyone's mind. And thank you for the caring and the way you care and the way you ask questions and listen to the answers. Thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan, our guest this episode. Once again, American educator, activist, and author Warren Farrell. His latest book, The Boy Crisis, is co-written with John Gray. Now, don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count on all of our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on the website. I'm also appearing now twice a week on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 167, Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time on Mondays and Fridays. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan. And remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. You're